0: It's a pleasure to welcome everyone, and this, as you know, I think is the last of the uh, Wednesdays at four plus.
1: swimmer. Let's see.
0: There's a light. Now it's Do you think? No, it's not on yet. Who knows? As you probably welcome, and as you probably know, this is the last of the Wednesdays at four plus terrific uh, activities. And happily and fittingly, uh, our last terrific guest is uh, Paul Auster. His work is doesn't fit in usually uh, simple categorical boxes, simply that he uh, is a poet of real and determining order, uh, a remarkable translator, uh, editor, and has most recently been involved with film. Uh, two particular I'd like to mention are the uh, collaborations uh, with Wayne Wang, uh, one of which will be uh, issue will come out this June, Smoke, and also with that same. Fellow worker, uh, one in October called blue in the face, uh, so that again one recognizes uh, uh, immediately that the that the th- not simply the thing the thing this remarkable person does uh, changes uh, in some that the product necessarily is, is 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 always the point, but the agency, the way in which. Uh, uh, he he imagines creates and, and makes a world is, is, is that's to me where the where the where the where the crucial uh, address is for instance i had happily chance to write something via v's a couple of years ago paul oster works characteristically between the subjectivity of an author's intent the thing he or she has in mind to say, and the anticipated effect of the reader's understanding, how that will qualify meaning, what that also asks for as, quote, rhetorical address. It is not so much in the syntactic or situational disposition of words that he concentrates his efforts. Rather, he works to make clear contexts, cases, factors of human situation, paradigmatic demonstrations of relationship. If you give it a meaning, it has a meaning, is the way Wittgenstein put it. In this respect, Auster engages preoccupations of philosophy as do Kafka or Ceylon, both writers who had significant effect on him and concerning whose work he has written articulately. His, books of, his book of essays, which I note is now out in a, in, a, in a happily expanded edition uh, with the, with the added material of a of a, of, a, of a recent work called *The Red Notebook*, so I certainly recommend that to you, and we'll hear happily some some of some of it today. His book of essays, with its Kafkaesque title *The Art of Hunger*, is a useful advice of such locating interests: Habes, Reznikoff, and Laura Riding, are others whose work he has used. He notes of writing. Quote, the voice is not so much speaking out loud as thinking, following the complex process of thought in such a way that is almost immediately internalized by us. I think there too one might have have useful uh, put useful emphasis on that on that way in which the not simply the imagination as though that were a um, a feeling or a, or a projection of image, let 's say simply, but how the that in mind in one 's own head translates to a that in mind or this in mind in someone else's, how does it get there? Do you see or how does it how does it become thus real for you? Uh, that seems to me an immensely uh, uh, specific part of his of his undertaking, thinking of this variousness. Uh, I also have long been attracted, as I I think I mentioned, to his work as a translator because I think that's uh, crucial or initial. Uh, One of the most remarkable books he's thus done or translated literally was is Mellarmé's A Tomb for Anatole. which was his painful attempt? The uh, 202 fragments, which make up Melarmé's painful attempt, attempt to locate in mind and feeling his eight-year-old son's death. From Melarmé's letters, one knows well how complex and displacing this despairing time was for him, as his attempt to make it make a means for the irrevocable loss to be admitted, a tomb for Anatole, grafts as it can. Mallarme's intense and conflicting emotions at the prospect of his son's dying and then in its fact. What survives is, as Auster calls it, quote, a kind of or text, the raw daughter of the poetic process, unquote. Uh, what I found m- remarkable magnificent, in fact, was was Paul Auster's ability to a to arrive at a, at, a, at, a, at a translation literally that continued and, and, and made that, uh, that those terms of complex, impossible to resolve feeling so 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 substantial. Paul Auster's formal resources have therefore long been decisive. The creation of such a structure some years ago now as the invention of solitude is again unique memoir, or whatever one chooses thus to call it, is sufficient evidence. It is also, as all that he has written, an emphatic advice of his address as a writer, which is not only to tell the story, but to tell the story of the story in so doing. It is a place he is after, a quote, point in space, unquote, which can, as Wittgenstein put it, be, quote, a place for an argument, unquote. That is what, quote, thought, unquote, quote, thinks, unquote, and in doing so, it comes to the initiation of its, quote, grounds for inquiry, unquote, the reality which it would define. Ours is much concerned with paternity still. It seemed to me interesting that in so many of the narratives, a crucial term or presence is that of the fact of father and of son, initial initial, initial son, initial father. Ours is much concerned with paternity still, not simply who it was that fathered us, but what that then made the case, did for or to or with us. How shall we know ourselves as, as if this is not known? O oh, fathers and teachers." Unquote. Please welcome Paul Auster.
1: Thanks, Bob. Since it's very frustrating to read excerpts from novels, I thought I would read the entire Red Notebook, which maybe some of you or most of you don't know. It's about 30 pages, so it should take about an hour to read it, maybe 45, 50 minutes. I'm not exactly sure. It's um, self-explanatory. You'll see what it's all about. Uh, And it's in 13 sections, so I'll just read right from the start to the end. One, in 1972, a close friend of mine ran into trouble with the law. She was in Ireland that year, living in a small village not far from the town of Sligo. As it happened, I was visiting on the day a plainclothes detective drove up to her cottage and presented her with a summons to appear in court. The charges were serious enough to require a lawyer. My friend asked around and was given a name, and the next morning we bicycled into town to meet with this person and discuss the case. To my astonishment, he worked for a firm called Argue and Fibs, P-H-I-B-B-S. This is a true story. If there are those who doubt me, I challenge them to visit Sligo and see for themselves if I have made it up or not. I have reveled in these names for the past twenty years, but even though I can prove that Argue and fibs were real men, the fact that the one name should have been coupled with the other to form an even more delicious joke, an out-and-out send-up of the legal profession, is something I still find hard to believe. According to my latest information, three or four years ago, the firm continues to do a thriving business. Two. The following year, 1973, I was offered a job as caretaker of a farmhouse in the south of France. My friend's legal troubles were well behind her, and since our on-again, off-again romance seemed to be on again, we decided to join forces and take the job together. We had both run out of money by then, and without this offer, we would have been compelled to return to America, which neither one of us was prepared to do just yet. It turned out to be a curious year. On the one hand, the place was beautiful, a large 18th-century stone house bordered by vineyards on one side and a national forest on the other. The nearest village was two kilometers away, but it was inhabited by no more than 40 people, none of whom was under 60 or 70 years old. It was an ideal spot for two young writers to spend a year, and Elle and I both worked hard there, accomplishing more in that house than either one of us would have thought possible. On the other hand, we lived on the brink of permanent catastrophe. Our employers, an American couple who lived in Paris, sent us a small monthly salary—$50—a gas allowance for the car, and money to feed the two laboratory retrievers who were part of the household. All in all, it was a generous arrangement. There was no rent to pay. And even if our salary fell short of what we needed to live on, it gave us a head start on each month's expenses. Our plan was to earn the rest by doing translations. Before leaving Paris and settling in the country, we had set up a number of jobs to see us through the year. What we had neglected to take into account was that publishers are often slow to pay their bills. We'd also forgotten to consider that checks sent from one country to another can take weeks to clear, and that once they do, bank charges and exchange fees cut into the amounts of those checks. Since Elle and I had left no margin for error or miscalculation, we often found ourselves in quite desperate straits. I remember savage nicotine fits. My body, numb with need, as I scrounged among sofa cushions and crawled behind cupboards in search of loose coins. For 18 centimes, about three and a half cents, you could buy a brand of cigarettes called Parisienne, which were sold in packs of four. I remember feeding the dogs and thinking that they ate better than I did. I remember conversations with Elle when we seriously considered opening a can of dog food and eating it for dinner. Our only other source of income that year came from a man named James Sugar. I don't mean to insist on metaphorical names, but facts are facts, and there's nothing I can do about it. Sugar worked as a staff photographer for National Geographic, and he entered our lives because he was collaborating with one of our employers on an article about the region. He took pictures for several months crisscrossing Provence in a rented car provided by his magazine, and whenever he was in our neck of the woods, he would spend the night with us. Since the magazine also provided him with an expense account, he would very graciously slip us the money that had been allotted for his hotel costs. If I remember correctly, the sum came to 50 francs a night. In effect, L and I became his private innkeepers, and since Sugar was an amiable man into the bargain, we were always glad to see him. The only problem was that we never knew when he was going to turn up. He never called in advance, and more often than not, weeks would go by between his visits. We therefore learned not to count on Mr. Sugar. He would arrive out of nowhere, pulling up in front of the house in a shiny blue car, stay for a night or two, and then disappear again. Each time he left, we assumed that was the last time we would ever see him. The worst moments came for us in the late winter and early spring. Checks failed to arrive. One of the dogs was stolen, and little by little, we ate our way through the stockpile of food in the kitchen. In the end, we had nothing left but a bag of onions, a bottle of cooking oil, and a packaged pie crust that someone had bought before we ever moved into the house, a stale remnant from the previous summer. Elle and I held out all morning and into the afternoon. But by 2.30, hunger had gotten the better of us. And so we went into the kitchen to prepare our last meal. Given the paucity of elements we had to work with, an onion pie was the only dish that made sense. (laughs) After our concoction had been in the oven for what seemed a sufficient length of time, we took it out, set it on the table, and dug in. Against all our expectations, we both found it delicious. I think we even went so far as to say that it was the best food we had ever tasted. But no doubt that was a ruse, a feeble attempt to keep our spirits up. Once we had chewed a little more, however, disappointment set in. Reluctantly, ever so reluctantly, we were forced to admit that the pie had not yet cooked through, that the center was still too cold to eat. There was nothing to be done but put it back in the oven for another 10 or 15 minutes. considering how hungry we were, and considering that our salivary glands had just been activated, relinquishing the pie was not easy. To stifle our impatience, we went outside for a brief stroll, thinking that time would pass more quickly if we removed ourselves from the good smells in the kitchen. As I remember it, we circled the house once, perhaps twice. Perhaps we drifted into a deep conversation about something I can't remember. But however it happened, and however long we were gone, By the time we entered the house again, the kitchen was filled with smoke. We rushed to the oven and pulled out the pie, but it was too late. Our meal was dead. It had been incinerated, burned to a charred and blackened mass, and not one morsel could be salvaged. It sounds like a funny story now, but at the time it was anything but funny. We had fallen into a dark hole, and neither one of us could think of a way to get out. In all my years of struggling to be a man, I doubt there has ever been a moment when I felt less inclined to laugh or crack jokes. This was really the end, and it was a terrible and frightening place to be. That was at four o'clock in the afternoon. Less than an hour later, the errant Mr. Sugar suddenly appeared, driving up to the house in a cloud of dust, gravel and dirt crunching all around him. If I think about it hard enough, I can still see the naive and goofy smile on his face as he bounced out of the car and said hello. It was a miracle. It was a genuine miracle, and I was there to witness it with my own eyes, to live it in my own flesh. Until that moment, I had thought those things happened only in books. Sugar treated us to dinner that night in a two-star restaurant. We ate copiously and well. We emptied several bottles of wine. We laughed our heads off. And yet, delicious as that food might have been, I can't remember a thing about it. But I have never forgotten the taste of the onion pie. Three. Not long after I returned to New York, July 1974, a friend told me the following story. It was set in Yugoslavia during what must have been the last months of the Second World War. S.'s uncle was a member of a Serbian partisan group that fought against the Nazi occupation. One morning, he and his comrades woke up to find themselves surrounded by German troops. They were holed up in a farmhouse somewhere in the country. A foot of snow lay on the ground, and there was no escape. Not knowing what else to do, the men decided to draw lots. Their plan was to burst out of the farmhouse one by one, dash through the snow, and see if they couldn't make it to safety according to the results of the draw, as his uncle was supposed to go third. He watched through the window as the first man ran out into the snow-covered field. There was a barrage of machine gun fire from across the woods, and the man was cut down. A moment later, the second man ran out, and the same thing happened. The machine guns blasted, and he fell down dead in the snow. Then it was my friend's uncle's turn. I don't know if he hesitated at the doorway. I don't know what thoughts were pounding through his head at that moment. The only thing I was told was that he started to run, charging through the snow for all he was worth. It seemed as if he ran forever. Then, suddenly, he felt pain in his leg. A second after that, an overpowering warmth spread through his body, and a second after that, he lost consciousness. When he woke up, he found himself lying on his back in a peasant's cart. He had no idea how much time had elapsed, no idea of how he had been rescued. He had simply opened his eyes, and there he was, lying in a cart that some horse or mule was pulling down a country road, staring up at the back of a peasant's head. He studied the back of that head for several seconds, and then loud explosions began to erupt from the woods. Too weak to move, he kept looking at the back of the head, and suddenly it was gone. It just flew off the peasant's body. And where a moment before there had been a whole man, there was now a man without a head. More noise, more confusion. Whether the horse went on pulling the cart or not, I can't say. But within minutes, perhaps even seconds, a large contingent of Russian troops came rolling down the road, jeeps, tanks, scores of soldiers. When the commanding officer took a look at S's uncle's leg, he quickly dispatched him to an infirmary that had been set up in the neighborhood was no more than a rickety wooden shack, a henhouse maybe, or an outbuilding on some farm. There, the Russian army doctor pronounced the leg past saving. It was too seriously damaged, he said, and he was going to have to cut it off. My friend's uncle began to scream, don't cut off my leg, he cried. Please, I beg of you, don't cut off my leg. But no one listened to him. The medics strapped him to the operating table, and the doctor picked up the saw. Just as he was about to pierce the skin of the leg, there was another explosion. The roof of the infirmary collapsed. The walls fell down. The entire place was obliterated. And once again, S's uncle lost consciousness. When he woke up this time, he found himself lying in a bed. The sheets were clean and soft. There were pleasant smells in the room, and his leg was still attached to his body. A moment later, he was looking into the face of a beautiful young woman. She was smiling at him and feeding him broth with a spoon. With no knowledge of how it had happened, he had been rescued again and carried to another farmhouse. For several minutes after coming to, as his uncle wasn't sure if he was alive or dead, it seemed possible to him that he had woken up in heaven. He stayed on in the house during his recovery and fell in love with the beautiful young woman but nothing ever came of that romance. I wish I could say why, but S never filled me in on the details. What I do know is that his uncle kept his leg, and that once the war was over, he moved to America to begin a new life. Somehow or other, the circumstances are obscure to me. He wound up as an insurance salesman in Chicago. Four. Elle and I were married in 1974. Our son was born in 1977, but by the following year our marriage had ended. None of that is relevant now except to set the scene for an incident that took place in the spring of 1980. We were both living in Brooklyn then, about three or four blocks from each other, and our son divided his time between the two apartments. One morning I had to stop by Elle's house to pick up Daniel and walk him to nursery school. I can't remember if I went inside the building or if Daniel came down the stairs himself, but I vividly recall that just as we were about to walk off together, L opened the window of her third-floor apartment to throw me some money. Why she did that is also forgotten. Perhaps she wanted me to replenish a parking meter for her. Perhaps I was supposed to do an errand, I don't know. All that remains is the open window and the image of a dime flying through the air. I see it with such clarity, it's almost as if I have studied photographs of that moment, as if it's part of a recurring dream I've had ever since. But the dime hit the branch of a tree, and its downward arc into my hand was disrupted. It bounced off the tree, landed soundlessly somewhere nearby, and then it was gone. I remember bending down and searching the pavement, digging among the leaves and twigs at the base of the tree, but the dime was nowhere to be found. I can place that event in early spring because I know that later the same day I attended a baseball game at Chase Stadium, the opening game of the season. A friend of mine had been offered tickets, and he had generously invited me to go along with him. I'd never been to an opening game before, and I remember the occasion well. We arrived early, something about collecting the tickets at a certain window. And as my friend went off to complete the transaction, I waited for him outside one of the entrances to the stadium. Not a single soul was around. I ducked into a little alcove to light a cigarette. A strong wind was blowing that day. And there, sitting on the ground, not two inches from my feet, was a dime. I bent down, picked it up, and put it in my pocket. Ridiculous as it might sound, I felt certain that it was the same dime I had lost in Brooklyn that morning. 5. In my son's nursery school, there was a little girl whose parents were going through a divorce. I particularly liked her father, a struggling painter who earned his living by doing architectural renderings. His paintings were quite beautiful, I thought, but he never had much luck in convincing dealers to support his work. The one time he did have a show, the gallery promptly went out of business. B was not an intimate friend, but we enjoyed each other's company, and whenever I saw him, I would return home with renewed admiration for his steadfastness and inner calm. He was not a man who grumbled or felt sorry for himself. However gloomy things had become for him in recent years— endless money problems, lack of artistic success, threats of eviction from his landlord, difficulties with his ex-wife. None of it seemed to throw him off course. He continued to paint with the same passion as ever, and like—and unlike so many others, he never expressed any bitterness or envy toward less talented artists who were doing better than he was. When he wasn't working on his own canvases, he would sometimes go to the Metropolitan Museum and make copies of the old masters. I remember a Caravaggio he once did that struck me as utterly remarkable. It wasn't a copy so much as a replica, an exact duplication of the original. On one of those visits to the museum, a Texas millionaire spotted B at work and was so impressed that he commissioned him to do a copy of a Renoir painting, which he then presented to his fiancée as a gift. B was exceedingly tall, 6'5 or 6'6, good-looking and gentle in his manner qualities that made him especially attractive to women. Once his divorce was behind him and he began to circulate again, he had no trouble finding female companions. I only saw him about two or three times a year, but each time I did, there was another woman in his life. All of them were obviously mad for him, He had only to watch them looking at B to know how they felt. But for one reason or another, none of these affairs lasted very long. After two or three years, B's landlord finally made good on his threats and evicted him from his loft. B moved out of the city, and I lost touch with him. Several more years went by, and then one night B came back to town to attend a dinner party. My wife and I were also there, and since we knew that B was about to get married, we asked him to tell us the story of how he had met his future wife. About six months earlier, he said, he had been talking to a friend on the phone. This friend was worried about him, and after a while, he began to scold B for not having married again. You've been divorced for seven years now, he said, and in that time, you could have settled down with any one of a dozen attractive and remarkable women. but no one is ever good enough for you, and you've turned them all away. What's wrong with you, B? What in the world do you want? There's nothing wrong with me, b said. I just haven't found the right person that's all at the rate you're going, you never will. the friend answered I mean. Have you ever met one woman who comes close to what you're looking for? Name one. I dare you to name just one." Startled by his friend's vehemence, B paused to consider the question carefully. Yes, he finally said there was one, a woman by the name of E, whom he had known as a student at Harvard more than 20 years ago. But she had been involved with another man at the time, and he had been involved with another woman, his future ex-wife, and nothing had developed between them. He had no idea where E was now, he said, but if he could meet someone like her, he knew he wouldn't hesitate to get married again. That was the end of the conversation. Until mentioning her to his friend, B hadn't thought about this woman in over 10 years. But now that she had resurfaced in his mind, he had trouble thinking about anything else. For the next three or four days, he thought about her constantly, unable to shake the feeling that his one chance for happiness had been lost many years ago. Then, almost as if the intensity of these thoughts had sent a signal out into the world, the phone rang one night and there was E on the other end of the line. B kept her on the phone for more than three hours. He scarcely knew what he said to her, but he went on talking until past midnight, understanding that something momentous had happened and that he mustn't let her escape again. After graduating from college, E had joined a dance company. And for the past 20 years, she had devoted herself exclusively to her career. She had never married, and now that she was about to retire as a performer, she was calling old friends from her past, trying to make contact with the world again. She had no family. Her parents had been killed in a car crash when she was a small girl, and had been raised by two aunts, both of whom were now dead. Be arranged to see her the next night. Once they were together, it didn't take long for him to discover that his feelings for her were just as strong as he had imagined. He fell in love with her all over again, and several weeks later, they were engaged to be married. To make the story even more perfect, it turned out that E was independently wealthy. Her aunts had been rich, and after they died, she had inherited all their money, which meant that not only had B found true love, but the crushing money problems that had plagued him for so many years had suddenly vanished, all in one fell swoop. swoop. A year or two after the wedding, they had a child. At last report, mother, father, and baby were doing just fine. Six. In much the same spirit, although spanning a shorter period of time, several months as opposed to 20 years, another friend, R., told me of a certain out-of-the-way book that he'd been trying to locate without success, scouring bookstores and catalogs for what was supposed to be a remarkable work that he very much wanted to read, and how, one afternoon as he made his way through the city, he took a shortcut through Grand Central Station, walked up the staircase that leads to Vanderbilt Avenue, and caught sight of a young woman standing by the marble railing with a book in front of her, the same book he had been trying so desperately to track down. Although he is not someone who normally speaks to strangers, R. was too stunned by the coincidence to remain silent. "'Believe it or not,' he said to the young woman, "'I've been looking everywhere for that book.' "'It's wonderful,' the young woman answered. "'I just finished reading it.' "'Do you know where I could find another copy?' R. asked. "'I can't tell you how much it would mean to me.' "'This one is for you,' the woman answered. "'But it's yours,' R. said. It was mine, the woman said, but now I'm finished with it. I came here today to give it to you. Seven. Twelve years ago, my wife's sister went off to live in Taiwan. Her intention was to study Chinese, which she now speaks with breathtaking fluency, and to support herself by giving English lessons to native Chinese speakers in Taipei. That was approximately one year before I met my wife, who was then a graduate student at Columbia University. One day, my future sister-in-law was talking to an American friend, a young woman who had also gone to Taipei to study Chinese. The conversation came around to the subject of their families back home, which in turn led to the following exchange. I have a sister who lives in New York, my future sister-in-law said. So do I, her friend answered. My sister lives on the Upper West Side. So does mine. My sister lives on West 109th Street. Believe it or not, so does mine. My sister lives at 309 West 109th Street. So does mine. My sister lives on the second floor of 309 West 109th Street. The friend took a deep breath and said, I know this sounds crazy, but so does mine. It is scarcely possible for two cities to be farther apart than Taipei and New York. They are at opposite ends of the earth, separated by a distance of more than 10,000 miles, and when it is day in one, it is night in the other. As the two young women in Taipei marveled over the astounding connection they had just uncovered, they realized that their two sisters were probably asleep at that moment. On the same floor of the same building in northern Manhattan, each one was sleeping in her own apartment, unaware of the conversation that was taking place about them on the other side of the world. Although they were neighbors, it turned out that the two sisters in New York did not know each other. When they finally met two years later, neither one of them was living in that building anymore. Siri and I were married then. One evening on our way to an appointment somewhere, we happened to stop in at a bookstore on Broadway to browse for a few minutes. We must have wandered into different aisles, and because I, and because Siri wanted to show me something, or because I wanted to show her something, I can't remember. One of us spoke the other's name out loud. A second later, a woman came rushing up to us. "You're Paul Oster and Siri Hustvedt, aren't you?" she said. "Yes," we said. "That's exactly who we are." "How did you know that?" The woman then explained that her sister and Siri's sister had been students together in Taiwan. The circle had been closed at last. Since that evening in the bookstore 10 years ago, this woman has been one of our best and most loyal friends. Eight. Three summers ago, a letter turned up in my mailbox. It came in a white oblong envelope and was addressed to someone whose name was unfamiliar to me, Robert M. Morgan of Seattle, Washington. Various post office markings were stamped across the front not deliverable, unable to forward, return to writer. Mr. Morgan's name had been crossed out with a pen, and beside it, someone had written, not at this address. Drawn in the same blue ink, an arrow pointed to the upper left-hand corner of the envelope, accompanied by the words, return to sender. Assuming that the post office had made a mistake, I checked the upper left-hand corner to see who the sender was. There, to my absolute bewilderment, I discovered my own name and my own address. Not only that, but this information was printed on a custom-made address label, one of those labels you can order in packs of 200 from advertisements on matchbook covers. The spelling of my name was correct. The address was my address, and yet the fact was, and still is, that I have never owned or ordered a set of printed address labels in my life. Inside, there was a single-spaced typewritten letter that began, <clears throat> Dear Robert, in response to your letter dated July 15, 1989, I could only say that, like other authors, I often receive letters concerning my work. Then, in a bombastic, pretentious style, riddled with quotations from French philosophers and oozing with a tone of conceit and self-satisfaction, the letter writer went on to praise Robert, for the ideas he had developed about one of my books in a college course on the contemporary novel. It was a contemptible letter, the kind of letter I would never dream of writing to anyone, and yet it was signed with my name. The handwriting did not resemble mine, but that was small comfort. Someone was out there trying to impersonate me, and as far as I know, he still is. One friend suggested that this was an example of male art. Knowing that the letter could not be delivered to Robert Morgan, since there was no such person, the author of the letter was actually addressing his remarks to me. But that would imply an unwarranted faith in the US Postal Service. And I doubt that someone who would go to the trouble of ordering address labels in my name and then sitting down to write such an arrogant, high-flown letter would leave anything to chance. Or would he? Perhaps the smart alex of this world believe that everything will always go their way. I have scant hope of ever getting to the bottom of this little mystery. The prankster did a good job of covering his tracks, and he has not been heard from since. What puzzles me about my own behavior is that I have not thrown away the letter, even though it continues to give me chills every time I look at it. A sensible man would have tossed the thing in the garbage. Instead, for reasons I do not understand, I have kept it on my work table for the past three years allowing it to become a permanent fixture among my pens and notebooks and erasers. Perhaps I keep it there as a monument to my own folly. Perhaps it is a way to remind myself that I know nothing, that the world I live in will go on escaping me forever. Nine. One of my closest friends is a French poet by the name of C. We have known each other for more than 20 years now. And while we don't see each other often, he lives in Paris and I live in New York, the bond between us remains strong. It is a fraternal bond somehow, as if in some former life we had actually been brothers. C is a man of manifold contradictions. He is both open to the world and shut off from it, a charismatic figure with scores of friends everywhere, legendary for his kindness, his humor, his sparkling conversation, and yet, someone who has been wounded by life, who struggles to perform the simple tasks that most other people take for granted. An exceptionally gifted poet and thinker about poetry, C. is nevertheless hampered by frequent writing blocks, (coughs) streaks of morbid self-doubt, and surprisingly, for someone who is so generous, so profoundly lacking in mean-spiritedness, a capacity for long-standing grudges and quarrels, usually over some trifle or abstract principle. No one is more universally admired than C. no one has more talent, no one so readily commands the center of attention, and yet he has always done everything in his power to marginalize himself. Since his separation from his wife many years ago, he has lived alone in a number of small, one-room apartments, subsisting on almost, on almost no money and only fitful bouts of employment publishing little, and refusing to write a single word of criticism even though he reads everything and knows more about contemporary poetry than anyone in France. To those of us who love him, and we are many, C is often a cause of concern. To the degree that we respect and care about his well-being, we also worry about him. He had a rough childhood. I can't say to what extent that explains anything, but the fact should not be overlooked. His father apparently ran off with another woman when C was a little boy and after that my friend grew up with his mother, an only child with no family life to speak of. I have never met C's mother, but by all accounts she is a bizarre character. She went through a series of love affairs during C's childhood and adolescence, each each with a man younger than the man before him. By the time C left home to enter the army at the age of 21, Her mother's boyfriend was scarcely older than he was. In more recent years, the central purpose of her life has been a campaign to promote the canonization of a certain Italian priest, whose name eludes me now. She has besieged the Catholic authorities with countless letters defending the holiness of this man. And at one point, she even commissioned an artist to create a life-size statue of the priest, which now stands in her front yard as an enduring testament to her cause. Although not a father himself, C became a kind of pseudo-father seven or eight years ago. After a falling out with his girlfriend, during which they temporarily broke up, his girlfriend had a brief affair with another man and became pregnant. The affair ended almost at once, but she decided to have the baby on her own. A little girl was born, and even though C is not her real father, He has devoted himself to her since the day of her birth and adores her as if she were his own flesh and blood. About one day, about four years ago, C happened to be visiting a friend. In the apartment, there was a Minitel, a small computer given out free by the French telephone company. Among other things, the Minitel contains the address and phone number of every person in France. As C sat there playing with his friend's new machine, it suddenly occurred to him to look up his father's address. He found it in Lyon. When he returned home later that day, he stuffed one of his books into an envelope and sent it off to the address in Lyon, initiating the first contact with his father in over 40 years. None of it made any sense to him. Until he found himself doing these things, it had never even crossed his mind that he wanted to do them. That same night, he ran into another friend in a cafe, a woman psychoanalyst and told her about these strange, unpremeditated acts. It was as if he had felt his father calling out to him, he said, as if some uncanny forest had, been unleashed in, it's, had unleashed itself inside him. Considering that he had absolutely no memories of the man, he couldn't even begin to guess when they had last seen each other. The woman thought for a moment and said, how old is L, referring to C's girlfriend's daughter? Three and a half, C answered. I can't be sure," the woman said, but I'd be willing to bet that you were three and a half the last time you saw your father. I say that because you love Elle so much. Your identification with her is very strong, and you're reliving your life through her. Several days after that, there was a reply from Lyon, a warm and perfectly gracious letter from C's father. After thanking C for the book, he went on to tell him how proud he was to learn that his son had grown up to become a writer. By pure coincidence, he added, the package had been mailed on his birthday, and he was very moved by the symbolism of the gesture. None of this tallied with the stories C. had heard throughout his childhood. According to his mother, his father was a monster of selfishness who had walked out on her for a slut and had never wanted anything to do with his son. C. had believed these stories and, thereafter, and therefore had shied away from any contact with his father. Now, on the strength of this letter, he no longer knew what to believe. He decided to write back. The tone of his response was guarded, but nevertheless it was a response. Within days he received another reply, and the second letter was just as warm and gracious as the first had been. C and his father began a correspondence. It went on for a month or two, and eventually C began to consider traveling down to Lyon to meet his father face to face. Before he could make any definite plans, he received a letter from his father's wife informing him that his father was dead. He had been in ill health for the past several years, she wrote, but the recent exchange of letters with C had given him great happiness, and his last days had been filled with optimism and joy. It was at this moment that I first heard about the incredible reversals that had taken place in C's life. Sitting on the train from Paris to Lyon, on the way to visit uh, on his way to visit his stepmother for the first time he wrote me a letter that sketched out the story of the past month his handwriting reflected each jolt of the tracks as if the speed of the train were an exact image of the thoughts racing through his head as he put it somewhere in that letter i feel as if i've become a character in one of your novels his father's wife could not have been friendlier to him during the visit among other things, C. learned that his father had suffered a heart attack on the morning of his last last birthday, the same day that C. had looked up his address on the Minitel, and that, yes, C. had been precisely three and a half years old at the time of his parents' divorce. His stepmother then went on to tell him the story of his life from his father's point of view, which contradicted everything his mother had ever told him. In this version, it was his mother who had walked out on his father. It was his mother who had forbidden his father from seeing him. It was his mother who had broken his father's heart. She told C how his father would come around to the schoolyard when he was a little boy to look at him through the fence. C remembered that man, but not knowing who he was, he had been afraid. C's life had now become two lives. There was version A and version B, and both of them were his story. He had lived them both in equal measure, two truths that canceled each other out, and all along, without even knowing it, he had been stranded in the middle. His father had owned a small stationery store, the usual stock of paper and writing materials, along with a rental library of popular books. The business had earned him a living, but not much more than that, and the estate he left behind was quite modest. The numbers are unimportant, however. What counts is that C's stepmother, by, now, by then an old woman, insisted on splitting the money with him half and half. There was nothing in the will that required her to do that, and morally speaking, she needn't have parted with a single penny of her husband's savings. She did it because she wanted to, because it made her happier to share the money than to keep it for herself. 10. In thinking about friendship, particularly about how some friendships endure and others don't, I am reminded of the fact that in all my years of driving, I have had just four flat tires, and that on each of these occasions, the same person was in the car with me in three different countries, spread out over a period of eight or nine years. Jay was a college friend, and though there was always an edge of unease and conflict in our relations, for a time we were close. One spring, while we were still undergraduates, we borrowed my father's ancient station wagon and drove up into the wilderness of Quebec. The seasons changed more slowly in that part of the world, and winter was not yet over. The first flat tire did not present a problem. We were equipped with a spare. But when a second tire blew out less than an hour later, we were stranded in the bleak and frigid countryside for most of the day. At the time, I shrugged off the incident as a piece of bad luck. But four or five years later, when Jay came to France to visit the house where Ellen and I were working as caretakers, in miserable condition, inert with depression and self-pity, unaware that he was overstaying his welcome with us, the same thing happened. We went to Aix-en-Provence for the day, a drive of about two hours, and coming back late that night on a dark backcountry road, we had another flat. Just a coincidence, I thought, and then pushed the event out of my mind, but then... Four years after that, in the waning months of my marriage to Elle, Jay came to visit us again, this time in New York State, where Elle and I were living with Just then, as I waited for a car to pass by, I heard the unmistakable hiss of escaping air. Another tire had gone flat, and this time we hadn't even left the house. Jay and I both laughed, of course, but the truth is that our friendship never really recovered from that fourth flat tire. I'm not saying that the flat tires were responsible for our drifting apart, but in some perverse way they were an emblem of how things had always stood between us, the sign of some impalpable curse. I don't want to exaggerate, but even now I can't quite bring myself to reject those flat tires as meaningless, for the fact is that Jay and I have lost contact, and we have not spoken to each other in more than ten years. years—eleven. In 1990, I found myself in Paris again for a few days. One afternoon, I stopped by the office of a friend to say hello and was introduced to a Czech woman in her late 40s or early 50s, an art historian who happened to be a friend of my friend. She was an attractive and vivacious person, I remember, but since she was on the point of leaving when I walked in, I spent no more than five or ten minutes in her company. As usually happens in such situations, we talked about nothing of any importance, a town we both knew in America, the subject of a book she was reading, the weather. Then we shook hands, she walked out the door, and I have never seen her again. After she was gone, the friend I had come to visit leaned back in her chair and said, do you want to hear a good story? Of course, I said, I'm always interested in good stories. I like my friend very much, she continued, so don't get the wrong idea. I'm not trying to spread gossip about her. It's just that I feel you have a right to know this. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure, but you have to promise me one thing. If you ever write the story, you mustn't use anyone's name. I promise, I said. And so my friend let me in on the secret. From start to finish, it couldn't have taken her more than three minutes to tell the story I am about to tell now. The woman I had just met was born in Prague during the war. When she was still a baby, her father was captured, impressed into the German army, and shipped off to the Russian front. She and her mother never heard from him again. They received no letters, no news to tell them if he was alive or dead, nothing. The war just swallowed him up, and he vanished without a trace. Years passed. The girl grew up. She completed her studies at the university and became a professor of art history. According to my friend, she ran into trouble with the government during the Soviet crackdown in the late 60s, but exactly what kind of trouble was never made clear to me. Given the stories I know about what happened to other people during that time, it is not very difficult to guess. At some point, she was allowed to begin teaching again. In one of her classes, there was an exchange student from East Germany. She and this young man fell in love and eventually they were married. Not long after the wedding, a telegram arrived announcing the death of her husband's father. The next day, she and her husband traveled to East Germany to attend the funeral. Once there, in whatever town or city it was, she learned that her now dead father-in-law had been born in Czechoslovakia. During the war, he had been captured by the Nazis, impressed into the German army and shipped off to the Russian front. By some miracle, he had managed to survive. Instead of returning to Czechoslovakia after the war, however, he had settled in Germany under a new name, had married a German woman, and had lived there with his new family until the day of his death. The war had given him a chance to start all over again, and it seems that he had never looked back. When my friend's friend asked what this man's name had been in Czechoslovakia, she understood that he was her father which meant, of course, that insofar as her husband's father was the same man, the man she had married was also her brother. Twelve. One afternoon many years ago, my father's car stalled at a red light. A terrible storm was raging, and at the exact moment his engine went dead, lightning struck a large tree by the side of the road. The trunk of the tree split in two, and as my father struggled to get the car started again, unaware that the upper half of the tree was about to fall, the driver of the car behind him, seeing what was about to happen, put his foot on the accelerator and pushed my father's car through the intersection. An instant later, the tree came crashing down to the ground, landing in the very spot where my father's car had just been. What was very nearly the end of him proved to be no more than a close call, a brief episode in the ongoing story of his life. A year or two after that, my father was working on the roof of a building in Jersey City. Somehow or other, I wasn't there to witness it. He slipped off the edge and started falling to the ground. Once again, he was headed for certain disaster, and once again, he was saved. A clothesline broke his fall, and he walked away from the accident with only a few bumps and bruises, not even a concussion, not a single broken bone. That same year, our neighbors across the street hired two men to paint their house. One of the workers fell off the roof and was killed. The little girl who lived in that house happened to be my sister's best friend. One winter night, the two of them went to a costume party. They were six or seven years old, and I was nine or ten. It had been arranged that my father would pick them up after the party, and when the time came, I went along to keep him company in the car. It was bitter cold that night, and the roads were covered with treacherous sheets of ice. My father drove carefully, and we made the journey back and forth without incident. As we pulled up in front of the little girl's house, however, a number of unlikely events occurred all at once. My sister's friend was dressed as a fairy princess. To complete the outfit, she had borrowed a pair of her mother's high heels. And because her feet swam in those shoes, every step she took was turned into an adventure. My father stopped the car and climbed out to accompany her to the front door. I was in the back with the girls. And in order to let my sister's friend out, I had to get out first. I remember standing on the curb as she disentangled herself from the seat and just as she stepped into the open air, I noticed that the car was rolling slowly in reverse, either because of the ice or because my father had forgotten to engage the emergency brake. I don't know. But before I could tell my father what was happening, my, friend's, my sister's friend touched the curb with her mother's high heels and slipped. She went skidding under the car, which was still moving. And there she was, about to be crushed to death by the wheels of my father's Chevy. As I remember it, she didn't make a sound. Without pausing to think, I bent down from the curb, grabbed hold of her right hand, and in one quick gesture, yanked her to the sidewalk. An instant later, my father finally noticed that the car was moving. He jumped back into the driver's seat, stepped on the brake, and brought the machine to a halt. From start to finish, the whole chain of misadventures couldn't have taken more than eight or 10 seconds. For years afterward, I walked around feeling that this had been my finest moment. I had actually saved someone's life. And in retrospect, I was always astonished by how quickly I had acted, by how sure my movements had been at the critical juncture. I saw the rescue in my mind again and again. Again and again, I relived the sensation of pulling that little girl out from under the car. About two years after that night, our family moved to another house. My sister fell out of touch with her friend, and I myself did not see her for another 15 years. It was June, and my sister and I had both come back to town for a short visit. Just by chance, her old friend dropped by to say hello. She was all grown up now, a young woman of 22 who had graduated from college earlier that month, and I must say that I felt some pride in seeing that she had made it to adulthood in one piece. In a casual sort of way, I mentioned the night I had pulled her out from under the car. I was curious to know how well she remembered her brush with death, but from the look on her face when I asked the question, it was clear that she remembered nothing. A blank stare, a slight frown, a shrug. She remembered nothing. I realized then that she hadn't known the car was moving. She hadn't even known that she was in danger. The whole incident had taken place in a flash. Ten seconds of her life, an interval of no account, and none of it had left the slightest mark on her. For me, on the other hand, those seconds had been a defining experience, a singular event in my internal history. Most of all, it stuns me to acknowledge that I am talking about something that happened in 1956 or 1957, and that the little girl of that night is now over 40 years old. 13, this is the last one. My first novel was inspired by a wrong number. I was alone in my apartment in Brooklyn one afternoon, sitting at my desk and trying to work when the telephone rang. If I am not mistaken, it was the spring of 1980, not many days after I found the dime outside Shea Stadium. I picked up the receiver, and the man on the other end asked if he was talking to the Pinkerton agency. I told him no. He had dialed the wrong number and hung up. Then I went back to work and promptly forgot about the call. The next afternoon, the telephone rang again. It turned out to be the same person asking the same question I had been asked the day before. Is this the Pinkerton Agency? Again I said no, and again I hung up. This time, however, I started thinking about what would have happened if I had said yes. What if I had pretended to be a detective from the Pinkerton Agency? I wondered. I, I wondered. What if I had actually taken on the case? To tell the truth, I felt that I had squandered a rare opportunity. If the man ever called again, I told myself, I would at least talk to him a little bit and try to find out what was going on. I waited for the telephone to ring again, but the third call never came. After that, wheels started turning in my head, and little by little, an entire world of possibilities opened up to me. When I sat down to write City of Glass a year later, the wrong number had been transformed into the crucial event of the book, the mistake that sets the whole story in motion. A man named Quinn receives a phone call from someone who wants to talk to Paul Oster, the private detective. Just as I did, Quinn tells the caller he has dialed the wrong number. It happens again the next night, and again Quinn hangs up. Unlike me, however, Quinn is given another chance. When the phone rings again on the third night, he plays along with the caller and takes on the case. Yes, he says, I'm Paul Auster. And at that moment, the madness begins. Most of all, I wanted to remain faithful to my original impulse. Unless I stuck to the spirit of what had really happened, I felt there wouldn't have been any purpose to writing the book. That meant implicating myself in the action of the story, or at least someone who resembled me, who bore my name, And it also meant writing about detectives who were not detectives, about impersonation, about mysteries that cannot be solved. For better or worse, I felt I had no choice. All well and good. I finished the book 10 years ago. And since then, I have gone on to occupy myself with other projects, other ideas, other books. Less than two months ago, however, I learned that books are never finished, that it is possible for stories to go on writing themselves without an author. I was sitting alone in my apartment in Brooklyn that afternoon. I was alone in my apartment in Brooklyn that afternoon, sitting at my desk and trying to work when the telephone rang. This was a different apartment from the one I had in 1980, a different apartment with a different telephone number. I picked up the receiver, and the man on the other end asked if he could speak to Mr. Quinn. He had a Spanish accent, and I did not recognize the voice. For a moment, I thought it might be one of my friends trying to pull my leg. Mr. Quinn, I said. Is this some kind of joke or what? No, it wasn't a joke. The man was in dead earnest. He had to talk to Mr. Quinn, and would I please put him on the line? Just to make sure, I asked him to spell out the name. The caller's accent was quite thick, and I was hoping that he wanted to talk to Mr. Queen, but no such luck. Q-U-I-N-N, the man answered. I suddenly grew scared, and for a moment or two I couldn't get any words out of my mouth. I'm sorry, I said at last, there's no Mr. Quinn here, you've dialed the wrong number. The man apologized for disturbing me, and then we both hung up. This really happened. Like everything else I have set down in this red notebook, it is a true story. Thanks.